You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma. A former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. In today's episode, we wrap up the exploration of my spiritual coming-of-age novel, journeying through Peter Daniel Young's spiritual journey, mirroring my own crisis of faith 20 years ago. Stay tuned. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 29 of the Religion and Fiction podcast, bringing you week five of the Religion and Fiction book club, where we have been exploring my first book, A Rediscovered Faith, a sort of spiritual coming-of-age story that closely mirrors my own from 20 years ago, wrestling with deep questions about faith, life, and everything in between Questions that I myself wrestled with when I was a young adult. And when I set out to write this book, my hope was that it would be the book that I had wished I would have had during that season of questioning and doubting. I certainly hope it has been a useful exercise for you to navigate your own questions alongside Peter's own story. Or perhaps it has given you new perspective on the sorts of questions and the sorts of spiritual struggles that many people carry. Figured this was the perfect time at the start of the new year to contemplate these sort of new you questions and offer a space here at the intersection of the sacred and story to empower your own spiritual journey at the start of a new year. I also launched this book club to anticipate the arrival of the third book, the final book in the Faith Reimagined trilogy that I had finished up at the end of last year. That will launch in a few weeks through Kickstarter. So get the details in the show notes and be sure to follow so that when it launches, you'll be the first to know so you can be the first to back the super cool rewards offering the complete trilogy along with workbooks to help you navigate the story and your own story. Now, without further ado, let's get to the final week of our book club, exploring the final chapters, chapter 32 through 39. Here we go. We begin this final week with chapters 32 and 33, coming off from chapter 31, where Peter was beckoned to a hospital by his mother because his brother JT was found unresponsive and apparently overdosed on his drugs. This is the culmination of some foreshadowing that probably predicted this outcome, where JT had been living this life that was pretty reckless, pretty hopeless, and then began to find some hope in this alternative belief system, which is part of the complication of this death, in that alongside him is this journal 
that was found and what appears to be a sort of last confession, a suicide note in the language of the authorities. We'll get to some of this in a bit and the implications for this ending for the story and some of the major themes. But I want to state at the outset that we find all of the major characters in this room experiencing some different emotions regarding JT's death. There is his dad, who is pretty guilt-ridden in the way he treated his son, especially the lack of love and his judgment over where his life turned out. Then there is Johnny, who confesses sort of this confusion about where his brother is in this eternal sense, if he's in heaven. Then this moment of trying to reassure herself, Maggie, his mom, talks about JT's salvation and the fact that he prayed this prayer when he was young and almost trying to will her son into the arms of Christ. Then, of course, uh, Peter, voicing a lot of regret, mostly for not being there for his brother. Uh, But then also, as the chapter rolls on, especially into the next chapter, almost this guilt about introducing his brother to these alternative ideas, reimagining the Christian faith, which sort of gets at this overarching theme about the importance of ideas and their effects on people and their real eternal outcomes, their destinies with Christ. And I wonder about your own experience with people and maybe not their passing, but at least their relationship ending with you or moving on to something else and your connection to them in relationship to their understanding of faith and Christianity. Or maybe they did pass, and it was very uncertain where they were in their relationship with Christ, whether or not they had placed their faith in Him, and so had been ushered into the family of God, or hadn't. What was that like for you to experience that death, whether actual or sort of metaphorical with a relationship ending and you moving on, them moving on, and you no longer having that opportunity to point them to the truth of God's rescue and radical love in Christ. These chapters are sort of a reminder of that urgency and necessity to present to people we know our friends, especially, and family members, even coworkers, others in our circles, that there is this urgency to present the gospel, God's radical love in Christ's life, death, and resurrection to those we know in order to connect them to the heart of God and open them up to placing their faith in Christ for not only this life, but especially the life to come. Now, I don't want to rehash a lot of what goes on in this chapter, but I want to highlight a few things and use them as a way to probe your own connections to people in this life, your life. After everything goes down and Peter is wondering what is going on, he has this kind of conversation with himself internally. He asks, what happens to a person who prayed a prayer, lived a life in devotion to himself, 
cavalierly dismissed judgment and wrote off Jesus as the one path to God. In other words, what has happened to his brother? Because here's this guy who seems to have, at a young age, prayed a prayer of salvation, which is a very typical experience from what I had grown up in. He had a experience with the church, grew up in the church, probably lived for God at some level, but then his life fell apart and he started living for himself, neglecting his faith and relationship and seemed to actually turn away from God. What happens? Good question. Now, there are a whole lot of theological issues wrapped up in these questions, uh, particularly regarding the permanency of someone's salvation, whether or not they can lose it, whether or not they can apostatize from the church and fall away and fall out of relationship. I don't want to litigate all those here, but I think that it actually is important to consider at least the urgency of Christ at one level who says for us to maintain our watchfulness our readiness for his return. In the book of Revelation, there is this sense of which those who find victory are those who persevere and are faithful. The book of Hebrews warns against falling away and seems to leave open at least the possibility of being once saved and then leaving that behind, neglecting their first love. Then there are those passages which speak about the Holy Spirit being a deposit guaranteeing our salvation and how we are sort of in Christ and made permanent in that at some level. Again, I don't want to litigate those sides of the permanency coin when it comes to salvation. But the big kicker here in this story is that Peter begins to wonder based upon JT's own self-confession, what his relationship with God truly was, and whether or not the ideas that he introduced to him had swayed that connection and that perspective and that belief and faith in Jesus. Of course, all of those questions lead to another internal dialogue where he wonders, is my brother in hell? Big question, deep question. Uh, And I wonder if you've asked that yourself of someone you've known. If you've ever faced that similar question on the other side of somebody's spiritual journey or their own self-confession. If so, what was that like? And how did you resolve it for yourself? Now, here in the story, I know it's a pretty bold, big statement to leverage the death of someone in this sort of way, in these particular circumstances where all of these beliefs and ideas are swirling and this character is sort of caught up in them and then sort of seems to pull this exit hatch. And I want to be careful in, and I think my characters do, they take care about not ascribing or characterizing the progressive prosurgent movement or the Trevor Bowles author or these books to influencing JT's death or causing it or 
creating the circumstances that allowed for it, that is not the message I'm sending. And I hope that my characters reinforce that message. Although I probably could be guilty of raising the question and the issue. I get that, especially several books removed as the author, having penned this as my first book and navigating the dynamics of dealing with issues and characters and themes in a way that I was still learning, let's be frank. But at the base level, we have this, again, theme, ideas have consequences. And this is why I think this illustrates so clearly and profoundly the truth of that statement and why I hope that this story motivates both people who are still searching, exploring faith, but also believers who have people around them who are engaged in that process. And that is this reality that hell is for real and seems to be forever. Again, I know there are a whole lot of other theological issues regarding the end of a person's life and their eternity, their eternal outcome, whether hell is more a temporary state uh, and somebody who rejects Christ will be annihilated, whether or not it is for real and forever, as I suggested. At least at the base level, we can understand that death has a finality to it, right? And here is this person who has passed and who is surrounded by all these ideas, some of which were not as hopeful as he might have thought. Again, the urgency boils down to the finality of death and the possibilities on the other side. And I want to read an important passage from the book of Hebrews that I think speaks very specifically to this issue. The writer of Hebrews is addressing a number of things, but towards the end of chapter 9, he actually makes this very important point. He says, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That verse, and verse 27 of chapter 9, seems to suggest very strongly that there is a point at which people are die, they're destined to die once, and then after that to face judgment. And it is those who are waiting for him that salvation will be given to them. No do-over from what the text of Scripture suggests, which ratchets up this urgency for both people in this life who are seeking forgiveness and salvation to put their faith in Christ, to no longer doubt, as Jesus himself implored Thomas, his apostle, which we'll get to, uh, but to invest their trust for this life's salvation and next life's salvation in Jesus. But it also ratchets the urgency for followers of Jesus to teach what is true about God's love in an honest, gracious, loving way, but also in a truthful way, because the stakes are incredibly high. 
Of course, Peter senses this, and this is where the blame game starts for him with his brother and all of the conversations they had, the books and the authors that he introduced him to. He believes he failed JT. Literally says that, saying, I should have fought for his faith more, guarded his faith. His raised voice cracked with emotion. I wonder if you in some way can empathize with with him. And if you yourself have had those kinds of relationships and even moments with people where you feel like you failed them because you didn't care for their spiritual journey well enough, or you didn't bring them to the point of salvation, or you didn't speak that truth into their moment or circumstances when it was appropriate. Man, I know I have Uh, as a pastor, when I was discipling people in just relationships with people around me in my neighborhood. But, you know, Lexi has such good advice. She shares her story with her dad and how he committed suicide. And there was this similar blame game going on around in the family. And Lexi's point is that it's useless to try and figure it out or blame yourself for somebody Moving on. In the literal sense, somebody dying in this sort of horrific way, yes. But I think if you take it a little farther back and even apply it to just people moving on from our relationships with us, but also just people moving on from faith, we don't always know why, and we can't blame ourselves for it. That's the theme that we find, I think, from others that Peter begins to connect with. Uh, His friend Jake and his great professor, Calvin Van Dyke. But before getting that advice, what he really wrestles with here in these two chapters is the significance of the ideas, the gravity of ideas and their consequence And our witness to them, what we voice about all of the ideas concerning God's love, Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, the necessity for salvation, all of that in witness to those around us, to those we know, to those we love. Suicide, probably an extreme example that I tried to leverage Whether I did so well or not, you can be the judge of that. But the point was to leverage that in a way that confronted us with the gravity of ideas and their real eternal consequences for the real lives of real people. Deep, couple chapters there, and it's about to get deeper because Peter continues to process the fallout, the other side of his brother's death and his influence and impact on his life. Beginning with a relationship that has been an interesting one throughout the whole story, sort of a on-again, off-again mentoring relationship between Calvin Van Dyke and Peter Daniel Young. Peter shows up to Van Dyke's office and lays out the whole story. And here he is, again, feeling like he caused his brother's breaking with the faith of his childhood or even just Christianity in general. 
And here is what Van Dyke said. I want to read because it's important, again, in regards to our own relationships with people as Christians, seeking to guide them into relationship with Christ. Van Dyke says, brother, this isn't your fault. Peter says, I know, he interrupted. No, listen, Van Dyke interrupted back. I don't know James's story. I don't know what's been going on in his head and in his heart, but you can't blame his death on your conversations. You can't blame his death on whatever pro-surgent ideas he was latching onto. He reiterates this theme that no one's to blame but JT for what he believed or did not believe. It wasn't Peter's fault. It wasn't pro-surgent's fault necessarily, those ideas. It wasn't their conversations. JT was responsible for his own journey, you know, which should both convict us with our journey, but I think also give us relief when it comes to other people's journeys. We're not responsible. It is the Holy Spirit who uses us, speaks through us the truth of Christ into people's lives. It is the Holy Spirit that beckons others to himself. All we have to do is be open and available to the Holy Spirit's moving when it comes to sharing God's love and the hope of Christ with them. But at the end of the day, people are responsible for their own spiritual journeys. Same goes for people who are outside of Christ. Maybe you listening. It's not your past. It's not even the crappy church you might have grown up in or mean Christians you might have known. It's you and yourself and your own responsibility before God for your faith in Jesus. But again, he also reiterates ideas have consequences. As the book of James reiterates that teachers are responsible for the journey of those whom God has entrusted to us. The apostle writes that people shouldn't presume to be teachers because they'll be judged more strictly. They'll be held more accountable because of all the people they shepherd, whether in the pews through sermons or on the couch through books, as the good Professor Van Dyke says. So there is this sense of which we need to be careful with how we frame the gospel and what we say about what it means to be a Christian or a person of faith, because those words carry the power of life and death, which carries over into Peter's own continued wrestling with these ideas and their impact on his brother, made evident in his trip to the Manistee National Park. A little bit of an Easter egg there for my own interest in backcountry backpacking. I myself had taken a few trips there in my younger days with a full-on backpack with all the camping gear and found a nice uh, spot perched over a river down below where Peter has been. And so I wanted to throw that in there as sort of a bit of a flavor of my own interest to characterize and color Peter's. So there he is on this camping trip to sort of meditate on the last several weeks and months with his brother to meditate on the fallout, to kind of recuperate from that fallout. And it's in this experience that Peter finds this journal that JT had written about 
everything he'd been thinking and going through. His mom left it for him with a note saying that she thought he might like this to read it. So he takes it and begins flipping through it. And all of what this brother of his had been thinking about regarding faith, regarding even doctrine and theology, all of the major stuff regarding sin and the human condition, Jesus himself, who he was, and then the end about heaven and hell and death and eternity. And in this review of JT's journal, it was really driven home to Peter how the progressive narrative that he himself had sort of latched onto, this reimagining of faith, how it was really a false hope, offering no hope at all. How did he come to that characterization? And do you agree with that characterization? That these more progressive versions or iterations of Christianity are not at all hopeful? Why does he make that claim? I'll read a few of those observations from Peter here. Uh, He starts on page 335, noting that what he hadn't realized before, what he didn't see was how the progressive religion of Prosurgent would feed the broken aspects of James's life with the false hope of a false antidote. It didn't require anything from James, since tolerance rules this religion. And so the kind of change James needed wouldn't come in the first place because there was nothing beckoning him into transformation. It didn't offer power because the true source of power for this religion was the self rather than the spirit. It wasn't at all hopeful because it wasn't at all honest. The prosurgent religion isn't honest about the human condition, that we're busted beyond all self-repair and in desperate need of rescue. It isn't honest about who Jesus is as the only fix for our hopeless condition. It isn't honest about what Jesus did to bring and bear our remedy, the death he died to pay our price in our place, and it isn't honest about the end, the reality that every person on the planet will be judged, either in Christ or outside of Christ. So this is kind of a review of a lot of what Peter had been wrestling with throughout the book, moving from this posture of reimagining to then this new posture of rediscovering what the church has always believed about a range of things regarding sin, for instance, and the human condition. A more prosurgent, progressive version of the faith would say that our sinfulness or the reason why we do bad things is because of bad stories and bad habits and bad influences on the outside, rather than a traditional understanding that we are inside messed up, that we are by nature fallen and objects of God's wrath, as the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans, that we are fallen, that our human nature is messed up, broken, busted. Then, of course, there is this framing of Jesus as this Gandhi on steroids, as he has humorously referenced before earlier in the book, that Jesus is just this really good person who taught really good things and showed the world the highest, most loving expression of what it means to be human, that that is the power of Christ, rather than his perfect sinless life and the payment he paid for us on the cross. And then, of course, the end, that 
we're all just sort of in in the end. That we all just make it. That we all just get to go into this sort of eternal bliss rather than understanding this separation that Jesus Christ himself speaks about the lambs from the goats, those in versus those out, that there is this real eternal destiny, heaven and hell for those who are either in Christ or outside of Christ, which of course reiterates again the role of ideas and teachers and our own role in the lives of people communicating the truth of God's word and the hope, the actual hope of Christ and the good news of his gospel. If you are on your own journey, where do you find yourself when it comes to these ideas? Which ones do you find super hard to believe or to trust or to tolerate even our human condition and sin Jesus, his meaning, his purpose, his works for us and humanity, the end of the story, heaven and hell. Or if you are a believer, maybe you struggle with some of these yourself, or now are maybe recognizing the necessity of the truthfulness and hopefulness of rediscovering some of these old, old ideas central to the Christian faith. Of course, the most central idea and basic starting place is the necessity to believe in Jesus, which is where the story turns for a few chapters, 36, 37, 38, when the story turns to JT's funeral and Peter takes the reins on sort of helping planet, but also oversee the eulogy and particularly the sermon. And he centers this moment around the middle name of James, Thomas. Of course, if you've been in the church, are a Christian, you know of the the doubting Thomas label, or even outside the church, it's a sort of a cultural ism. And this is from, of course, John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. I won't read those here because you can read them in the book, but I'd like you to consider where you're at in regards to this exhortation from Jesus to stop doubting and just believe. Sort of strong words coming from this Gandhi on steroids, right, that our culture sort of makes Jesus out to be. But there he is, confronting Thomas with his doubts and encouraging him instead to believe. You know, I think this is a crucial juncture in the story. And again, some of these bigger themes that I'm trying to get across regarding here specifically doubt and this reimagining and this constant questioning that both Peter and JT were sort of wrapped up in. Because in our day and age, I've mentioned it before, but I want to mention it again. Doubt is sort of valorized, isn't it? It has been turned into a virtue rather than the opposite that Jesus suggests. He's saying, don't doubt. That's an imperative. He's saying, Stop doing it. Stop doubting. Doubt is not what even pleases me. Instead, what pleases me, what pleases Jesus, is 
belief. So are you in this posture of doubting and constant questioning, constant reimagining, or are you leveraging that sort of way station along your spiritual journey? Are you leveraging it to get to belief? Or are you just sitting there with the doubt, with the questions, kicking back, enjoying the doubt as an excuse not to believe? Hard-hitting questions, I know, but that's part of the book club. (laughs) Of course, Peter asks those very similar questions of his own audience in this eulogy, this sermon, And he uses JT's journal to sort of provoke these questions among those there. I wanted you to take a listen of one part in that that I want to read to provoke discussion amongst yourself regarding your connection to this part of JT's own story. So he read in his journal, Peter read, All my life, all I've ever known is Christianity. But I haven't always been a Christian. I'm not sure I am now. I don't understand how a good God could allow people to burn in hell forever. I don't understand why Jesus has to be the only way. I don't understand what is needed to be saved as they say. But I have come to believe that God accepts me. I haven't always felt that way, but now I do. I accept that I'm accepted. I've made peace with my journey and life and eternal future. Then Peter asked the question of, the audience, how many of us have been there with God, with faith, with Jesus? My brother was there. Maybe you have been there too, or are there, or know of others who are there. Can you identify with that? Do you know of others who are identifying with that same sort of impression about Christianity and God and Jesus, faith? And what do you trust in for your understanding of God's acceptance of you? For JT, it seemed to be this sort of faith in being accepted rather than his faith being invested in Jesus. This reminds me of a politician from, oh goodness, 20 years ago that talked about their faith In this Washington Post article I read back in the day when I lived in D.C. and picked up my Washington Post and read it every weekend. And this person, this politician was talking about their faith and how they had faith in faith, basically. (laughs) There was nothing about their faith being directed toward Jesus. There was no discussion about the object in which that faith was invested Instead, it was all about them living a life of faith or having faith or being a person of faith, which is a perfectly innocuous, unoffensive way of being a sort of spiritual or religious person in America these days, isn't it? A person of faith. Well, what does that even mean? And here, Peter's point in directing People to this passage in the book of John, chapter 20, is to not only confront doubt, but to also encourage a specific, particular faith, belief in Jesus. And he does that at the very end in chapter 38 in offering the sort of altar call, as it's called. 
inviting people to actually confess, repent, turn to, and believe in Jesus. And I wonder about your own spiritual journey, whether you yourself have done what Peter invites people to do. And whether or not you might want to do that now, by returning back to those pages, 362 in the paperback, I don't know what it is in an ebook version, but I'm sure you could find it, a very simple prayer of confession, repentance, a turning toward and belief in Jesus as your hope for forgiveness, rescue from sins, and eternal life. If you have, I'd love to hear your story. Please email it to me at jeremy at jaboma.com and share about your relationship and your own confession of faith in Jesus, especially if you sort of decided to do that through this study. In the end, Peter and his family end up at JT's grave site, and there is this very important moment of reflection, wondering a bit about JT's own eternal destiny, but this deep reminder that we don't know the last moments a person will have on this earth, that even a person will have with Christ and the opportunity to hear about him, but also follow him. And this, again, urgency of the now for those that we befriend, that we are in relationship with, that we come across, the urgency to share the love of God in Christ with them, the gospel, but also the urgency for us in this life to cast aside doubt and to instead follow Jesus's encouragement, his exhortation to believe. So we come to the end, chapter 39. We've come a long way. So thanks not only for reading, but for sticking along with me through this book club. And I wanted to just end with Peter's own final ending thoughts. After wrapping up his first year at Grand River Theological Seminary, turning in his final test essay and kind of wrapping things up with his new friends, his professor, he returns home and there is this final moment in his room this final sort of prayer. And I wonder whether or not you yourself sort of reflect this at the end as well. Let me read it and then consider where you fit in regards to his own final thoughts. A light rain began to coat the panes of Peter's bedroom window. A muffled thunder rumbled several miles away. Peter closed his eyes as much from weariness as it was to pray. Lord, I don't know where to turn, he mumbled aloud. I'm scared. I'm worried about where my life with you is going. It's such a burden. His prayer was interrupted by an answer he wasn't expecting. Peter, my love is enough for you, for your journey. Yes, Lord, but here I am training to be a pastor, and I don't even know up from down and what's what with you. I'm so confused. Please take away this burden of confusion. Again, the interruption. My grace is enough for you, son. But I'm so weak, he offered with a sigh. In the next breath, Peter had his answer. Peter, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
Peter's eyes blinked open as he remembered the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I sure don't feel strong, Peter thought as the rain began to strengthen its assault on his window. Could it be enough for me that God would be strong during my spiritual journey? Peter wondered. Out of fundamentalism through liberalism and beyond? Thunder clapped loudly as the storm muscled its way into Peter's afternoon. He opened his eyes suddenly, awakened from his trance. He watched as the branches from the sycamore trees out front began to sway, beating their arms against his window. So how do I go from here? Where do I turn from here? Peter paused mid-thought, closing his eyes and letting the inevitable words rise to the surface. Vintage Christianity. As ironic and odd-sounding of a term as it was, it did carry a nice ring to it. And wasn't that what he was doing anyway? If he was honest with himself, by rediscovering and retrieving the historic Christian faith, wasn't he returning and going back again? Going vintage? So, a few questions for you as we wrap this up. First of all, how does this reflect your own feelings about faith, about your own spiritual journey? Do you know where to turn with God? Do you know where you're heading with faith? Are you confused? Are you weak like Peter was at this point? Do you know others who are in a very similar state? What do you think it might mean to just let the grace of God be enough during this time, this period of wrestling and questioning? How might you lean into that grace, that crazy love for your own journey? Thanks again for joining this club through a rediscovered faith. I would love to dialogue more with you about these questions, particularly these final ones. If you have any thoughts, feel free to email me directly at jeremy at j-a-b-o-u-m-a dot com. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast and for joining the Religion and Fiction book club, Exploring a Rediscovered Faith. I hope it encouraged and inspired your faith and would love to hear your thoughts on the book and the study. Look for the final book, A Refined Faith, coming out very soon by following the Kickstarter in the show notes below. Stay tuned for another episode exploring the intersection of the sacred and story. Until then, grace and peace to you and happy reading.